0: thanks for downloading show 20 of the c-suite podcast i'm russell goldsmith and this month we're discussing the findings of a new report launched by translation and localization agency conversis that discusses the importance of understanding language and culture when managing an international crisis joining me here in the studios is conversis ceo gary muddiman together with francis ingham who is director general of both the uk and MENA public relations consultants associations and francis is also the chief exec of Ico, the international communications consultancy organization um, um, joining us also on the line is uh, Neil Chapman. Neil is a partner at WPNT Communications who specialise in crisis communication uh, leadership. And Neil was the former public affairs director at BP in the US and helped uh, manage the communications of the company during its troubled period after the Deepwater Horizon uh, oil spill and that's actually an event that is uh, highlighted in the report that we're going to be discussing. But Neil has also responded to emergencies and trained people in 28 countries, to be precise. So I think he has uh, the right creds for today's chat. Um, now, of course, we welcome your comments on this topic too. So please do share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter um, or whatever social network you prefer. Um, on Twitter, you can use the hashtag #CsuitePodcast. podcast. Gary, let's come to you first. The headline from the report is that international brand reputations are at risk because of language and cultural misunderstandings, which obviously sounds a little bit concerning. Um, before we get into the meat of the findings, though, maybe you can just start by giving a bit of background as to why you carried out the research in the first place.
1: OK. Hi, Russ. Yeah. Well, it's the second in a series of reports. I think we can call it annual now because we've done two of them. And and they are reports that cover issues that are either affecting or affected by language, being a language services company. So the first one concentrated on the lack of language education in both UK and US schools, universities and colleges, and how that's affecting uh, the competitiveness of uh, those two countries worldwide. And so we, that, that was the first one we did. And then I was involved in discussing the specific requirements of a communications agency backed in the, U, in the US. Uh, they're an international agency. And it was Became quite evident that the key problem that they had was around this whole issue of crisis communications. So then that became the second second report that we that we did, and uh, the research has been completed and the report is now ready.
0: Excellent. Well, we're we'll going to sort of quite a bit of detail of, of the report as we as we chat through the key stat that stood out for me, though, was that almost half of the respondents, and so so this was US and, and UK, mm. half the respondents admitted to having experienced a cultural faux pas due to a mistreated or wrong cultural reference in a campaign. But in over 68% of those cases, it led to sev- uh, severe ramifications. W- why do you think that, that figure is so high? Well, I think the thing that combines with it, actually, is, is that the...
1: The confidence that most people have is that they have it covered. And it's only when you dig a little bit deeper that you realise they haven't got it covered as well as perhaps they thought they did. But I think it links to the lack of language and cultural awareness that generally executives in the UK and the US have. I talked just a little (coughs) while ago about the previous report we did with the lack of language education. And one of the best ways to understand the culture of a country is to really understand their language. And I think that that whole attitude, if you like, affects us. And really, when you look at some of our competitor countries, if you want to look at it that way, they're real global citizens. So they understand the language, uh, they understand the culture, they understand what they're dealing with. And we just don't have that sort of education. If you combine or look at uh, UK, for example, and, and, and compare it with what goes on in Europe and the keenness In those European countries, for the students themselves, uh, the teachers, but also the organization to actually get them to really understand English then I think you've got your answer there. Uh,
0: uh, Francis, you're, you're nodding away there. Let's, let's bring you in at this point. You wrote the forward uh, to the report, and in it you said that the findings are a wake-up call for the PR industry on, on both sides of the Atlantic.
2: Yeah, they are, absolutely. I found this Converses report really, really interesting, and I, I completely agree with what Gary said, that there are too many people on both sides of the Atlantic who think that because English is our first language, mm. we've got it covered, mm. and that there isn't a need for any planning Resources or trying to get inside the mindset of the culture and indeed the language of the people that we're doing business with. I know that the UK and the US are the global hubs of PR excellence, Mm. but sometimes that leads to us being a little bit arrogant. So, my conclusion from having read the report and the data really is worthwhile studying is that we simply don't invest enough time, enough effort, enough money. In communicating in other languages, and in embracing and understanding their cultures, and I think that's a risk to the continued growth of the PR industry in the UK and the US.
0: Okay, Neil, let's let's bring you in here. Um, now, your company provides training to the C-suite on on crisis planning. What, what's your thoughts on this whole sort of area and topic?
3: the risk of uh, Bill (laughs) agreeing entirely with the other panelists there, but they're they're absolutely right. But let me take you to maybe at a local level, where we work with a lot of subsidiaries in in country. Um, And you'll you'll discover there that they are often the ones who are providing uh, some translation service. So they may be in China and they their uh, head offices in in America, so they're used to actually providing that language service there, but that's in peacetime. When they hit a crisis, the center suddenly expects them, when they're very, very busy, to provide the same service, whereas, in fact, it should revert then to the center who can actually take away that burden uh, from them when they need help. And also, at the same time, they need the authority—the authority not only to issue statements but to choose the language in which to do that, because it may be more appropriate to address the local audience than an international audience. Yeah. And that's usually the case. So you do find that many companies haven't quite worked out the authority levels and how they would help each other during a crisis. And language, both orally and written, is part of that. So when we train with them, we do encourage them to think, go through the motions of what they would do and to discover the gaps in their plans. But also, on a very practical level, say they're going to head up a press conference in, in, the, in the country where something has gone wrong, to go through the motions of doing that if, say, the, the person who would represent the company isn't a master of the language has to use an interpreter to understand the dynamics of that and how that makes it even more difficult Mm. to get messages across. In some countries, it has to be the most senior person in country. That's the case. And they are expected to be there, even though they might not speak the language. They just have to be there. But others, it may well be a case of you can actually bring someone in. It's more appropriate to bring someone lower down in the organisation who has got the language skill.
0: Interesting. Uh, Probably a good time to play a clip uh, from an interview I did last week for, um, for this podcast. I, me- I met with Simon uh, Waldman, who is a former editor of numerous BBC TV and uh, radio news programmes. Simon was speaking in the Crisis Com stream at PR Week's uh, PR360 global PR event last week um, that I attended. And I managed to grab a couple of minutes with him after his session. I started by asking him whether in his experience he felt that spokespeople for international brands were prepared globally rather than locally.
4: Uh, The short answer is no, and the slightly longer answer is it really depends on the crisis that they're dealing with. If the problem facing the brand or the company or the organisation is a national one, then they are very specifically prepared uh, and prepped and rehearsed to address the market that the problem has arisen in. The problem comes, of course, when Unknown to them what they say which works for, say, the UK market can go horribly wrong or be misinterpreted in another country. When the crisis is kind of global, even existential, then you often find that the spokesperson is prepped to deal with an international audience. And sometimes that means that some of the nuances are lost on the individual national audiences.
0: Neil, that last comment from Simon leads nicely on to an incident that's actually flagged in the Converse's report, which talks about the BEP Deepwater Horizon spill in the Gulf of Mexico back in April two thousand and ten. Now, I appreciate this has been looked at by many a PR journalist. Um and it's not it's not often though that someone who was in the mix of it is in a studio or, or on the line uh, in this case, um, discussing the topic of a cultural faux pas. And of course I appreciate you know, there's sensitivity of course with the issues given eleven workers lost their lives in that disaster. Um, but you know, the, the key issue that people quite rightly took offence to when um, the CEO at the time, Tony Haywood, used the phrase, I'd like my life back um, at the end of a TV news interview um, when he was make, meant to be making a public apology. But then following that, as the, as it's described in the report, the then BP chairman, Carl henrik Zvarnberg, followed that up with a cultural faux pas when he tried to translate a phrase from his local, or his native Swedish, um, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce it correctly, but it was basically like a figure of speech that means something like the common person, that Svanberg ended up by saying, we care about the small people, and that just came across highly patronising in English. So long way of getting to my question to you Neil. but what's what's your view on on how that part of the crisis comes played out at the time given obviously you were you were there at BP and do you think businesses have learned and now give more consideration in how they communicate uh, across different cultures during a crisis or is it just a case of let's just get this initial message out as quickly as we can and just worry about the aftermath uh, later
3: I'm I'm not sure frankly the companies we deal with we deal with it are thinking about it because they are taking the time and trouble to do to do that but going back to what you were saying about uh, tony haywood and the chairman of bp at the time i have a slightly different slant on it language was a key issue obviously but don't forget tony haywood his first language is english but he was speaking it down in louisiana where it's probably considered his second language uh, because with a british accent and of course for the chairman of bp english was his second language The key for me and the key that we we teach executives is very much, it's all about empathy and language plays into that because you've got to, the empathy is got to, you've got to show you're human. And until people realize that they're not, and and you realize they're hurting, how you demonstrate that empathy. And they, I'll be honest with you, they did not do a good job, but I think it was down to how they tried to do it in a crass way. Mm. And, Someone who is maybe not fluent in the language, but was trying to be really human and can demonstrate that, may have actually done it better. So empathy is part of that mix of how you demonstrate uh, uh, empathy, uh, but it's not the total, you know, the the complete picture there. Uh, There's an interesting book by Lawrence Suskin and Patrick Field about dealing with an angry public. And one of the things it says in there that what upsets people is if you don't share the same values and sometimes that is reflected in language. Some of that is just cultural sensitivity. So the key uh, around that for us is, is making sure that they understand the importance of empathy in a crisis. So we tell them very much, uh, the, the, the way we describe it is, get some dirt on your hands if you're involved in a crisis. And what we mean by that is if you can Speak to the people who have been impacted. Listen to them, really meet them. see them you know, go eye to eye, and, and see the impact of what has happened, whether it's your fault that you're involved in it, that your company has been involved in. If you look at them and see them and hear them, then the tone of what you say will, will change, and it will become much more human. And
2: empathetic. I agree entirely with what Neil just said. I mean, the example I would give is the Thomas Kirk example of how they responded mm. in a way that didn't share normal people's values, if you could use that phrase, and didn't show any any empathy. And also the other point that Neil made about just because English is your first language and you're talking to an English-speaking audience, you can't assume that your cultural sensitivities translate across. I know that uh, from my work running ECO, our members in the UK and the US and South Africa and Australia all have very different attitudes to doing business, and what comes over as uh, condescending to one comes over as authoritative to another, and it's that kind of thing we all have to be aware of.
1: Yeah, I mean, basically... Human looks different in different cultures and different, different nationalities. So, something that comes across as, as you know, I mean, if, if you use some sweeping generalisations, you no, know, something that comes across as someone taking control in the United States and being in charge of the situation can come across as very arrogant and uncaring in parts of Asia. So, it's about understanding the markets that you're trying to uh, you're trying to approach, like any other communications exercise
0: just want to change the topic very slightly. Neil, when, when we were talking about doing this podcast, you mentioned to me the issue of language migration. So I was just wondering if you want to explain the issue, you know, what the issue is and why companies need to be aware of it.
3: Yeah, I'd be interested if, Gary and Francis shared the same thing. This came out of a, a particular uh, um, incident I responded to, an explosion at a refinery, when uh, restarting the unit, you had to go out and meet members of the community. And what was discovered was that over a period of about five years, uh, the information we had about that community, which many of the, you know, the facilities had reached out to, had connection with, that it had gone from a dominant English-speaking to a dominant Spanish-speaking uh, community in effect. So it was not the time to discover that in effect. So you had to change the, the, the attitude and realize that in many ways, you'd, you'd missed the opportunity early during the crisis to address the, 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 the community uh, in, in its first language. And if you look what's happened in Europe recently, I've asked many uh, companies, and have said, hey, are you really aware of how the community around your facilities and if they're heavy industry, in particular, how has that community changed over the last five years? Um, A lot of immigrants will be economically challenged when they come into a a country, and I remember having a a conversation with someone in the Netherlands and saying, how many Arab speakers live around your facilities? Because they will, as immigrants, typically congregate around those areas where there's heavy industry, because it's obviously maybe areas where um, there may be cheaper housing. And and they really didn't know, and so I set off in effect the, them to try and find out, and they they realised yes the community or the language had migrated from being what they thought it was to a new language, and, and I'm sure Gary and Francis have have, have similar examples.
0: Yeah,
1: I'd, I'd, you know, just to really echo what Neil has said there, I mean it's about markets evolving. We all we all sit down either annually or half yearly and do our business plans because our markets evolve and they change. Well. The cultural and linguistic demands of those markets are also changing as well, and I wonder how often we focus on, on those particular issues. And we're specifically talking about crisis communications here, but I see it as the same investment that you make in your regular normal planned communications so um, i don't think it's any different it's just more difficult to manage at the time in a crisis situation
0: okay i want to go back to my interview with simon waldman and again referring to the report i i also asked him about corporate spokespeople's use of social media during an international crisis
4: tweets social media goes without saying a massively important tool in in uh the, the comms team the pr teams armory the ones who do it well are the ones who write something, create something for the spokesperson, for the chief executive, for the MD, that feels like it comes from the MD, the spokesperson, as an individual. The badly written ones you can see through a million miles away, that's corporate speak, that's the P- that's the PR team writing what they write and it doesn't sound genuine and it doesn't sound like it's from the heart. The important thing about social media is that if the problem arises on social media, you should try to deal with it immediately on social media. So if you've got a if you've got a tweet that's going around that's bad mouthing your company, you try and deal with it uh, as quickly as possible. You don't have you don't have even half an hour to start thinking about crafting a response, and you try and deal with it with a bit of humour. And some of the best examples are when PR campaigns have gone wrong. Uh, a Twitter storm erupts and the company responds on Twitter with a bit of humour and with a bit of, I suppose, self regulation as well.
0: Part of the report though is talking about speed and, and the obviously the need to respond quickly. Is there then a concern that the PR teams will take to the likes of Google Translate to do something very quickly and then obviously that could end up being a nightmare in terms of
4: if it hasn't been translated correctly? Yes, because it can all be lost in translation. Speed. Uh, is so important, you know, I would argue that you need to get your response out super, super quick and then you look and you try to anticipate any problems where your your words in, say, English have been translated into native tongue and have caused offence or caused a problem. But I think that if you tried to wait until you had absolutely copper bottom checked that what you say in English can be translated into every single language in the world without causing offence, you've missed your chance. Gary, what um, Simon said just then,
0: I guess, is obvious about not translating into every language. And of course, it all depends where your business trades to. But what's your advice to a company that is global? And as with over half of the respondents to the research from the US in in particular, um, are having to translate their campaigns into at least 11 to 20 languages?
1: I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask, given I've got a vested interest in saying (laughs) you should translate everything. But in truth, you don't need to do that. I mean, for me, it's a return on investment, risk management decision, like any other decision you're making when looking at at global markets. So, again, it's about understanding your market and understanding where the risks are and where you're prepared to make that investment. It may well be that risks in oil production, for example, are outweighs those in garment production so you may make different decisions depending on what market in in Holland you may say that English is enough because most business people in Holland understand English so it, it, it's those sort of detailed decisions but I think the detailed planning is the uh, is the important thing and then there's always a trade-off in language between speed and accuracy if you've got enough to Enough time, you can make anything absolutely word perfect. But if you're five days late in doing it, then it, it doesn't really, yeah, um, really make <laughs> solve the problem for you. But I would like to pick up just one point that, that Simon made there with humour. And if I was going to give one warning, you've got to be really careful <laughs> yeah. in using humour. From a either British perspective or American perspective, and how's that translates into a yeah. market.
0: That's interesting, actually. When when I heard him say that, mm-hmm. I was like, "Not so sure." But <laughs> uh, anyway, um, okay, we're back after two very quick messages.
2: Consumers are 10 times more likely to buy goods or services if addressed in their own language. Conversis enables international businesses to communicate their message across different languages and cultures. For translation and localization of your PR comms and website content, multilingual desktop publishing, and audio dubbing and subtitling of videos, visit conversis.com. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit c-suitepodcast.com Follow us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the show in iTunes by searching for the C-Suite podcast in the iTunes store. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do.
0: Welcome back to show 20 of the C-Suite podcast, where we're talking about a new report that looks into the uh, importance of understanding language (coughs) and culture when managing an international crisis with my three guests, Gary Muddyman, Francis Ingham and Neil Chapman. Now. Before we carry on with our chat, I just want to give a quick plug to the next show, Uh, next week, and I'm here to talk about another report called Joining the Dots, and that's been uh, jointly published by the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants and the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. The report investigates the effectiveness of C-suite decision-making in global organisations and suggests that senior leaders are struggling to make effective decisions um, in many cases. Um, Francis, I know this is off topic from today's chat, but I've I've read that report and it's actually pretty damning. It says, the large majority of senior leaders battle against bureaucratic decision-making processes, siloed and short-term thinking, breakdowns in trust and collaboration inside the organisation and difficulties with uh, translating ever-expanding volumes of informing uh, into uh, relevant knowledge. Uh, Do you see any of this in the comms industry you represent? (laughs) Yes, of course (laughs) Sounds like like a typical day in in most offices.
2: I I think I'd make two points about that really. One is that uh, it's always been with us, but I think it's, it's both, in a sense, getting worse because of the greater complexity of doing business in a globalised world, um, but also it's getting easier in the sense that chief executives increasingly recognise that corporate reputation is one of the key determinants of their company's future and of their own personal remuneration and prospects and so on. And we publish research on that every year that shows that that's going in the right direction. So I'm confident in that regard. My one personal bugbear, I'd always say, is that is when we're talking about crises, and when a crisis breaks, uh, I think it's often the lawyers who are the impediment to handling it correctly. Their instinctive risk-averse nature just stops people being human in the way that we've referred to earlier on. And I think that in that crisis moment, the PR guy has got to have built up the credibility and the reputation that the CEO turns to him or her as much as they do to the chief legal officer.
0: You can tell you you do this a lot because you were expertly brought it right back into the topic of <laughs> today's podcast. So, Thanks very much. Thank you very much for that. So more on that in uh, in show 21. But back to today's topic, um, I want to move on to the area of international media monitoring and in particular social media monitoring. So um, I want to come back to you, Neil. I'm just keen to find out what your take is on, on that, not just trying to monitor all the comments um, and understanding their sentiment in different languages, but in how and when to respond to it all as well.
3: Yeah, I mean, you could have a whole podcast, and there are many uh, podcasts, obviously, on social media, but in terms of, of crisis, in t- it, but culturally, as you know, hmm. we and, and Gary, who was being interviewed there, not Gary who's in the in the studio, but Gary who's being interviewed there, talked about Twitter, and we think of social media and Twitter uh, almost as if they're the same thing. And yet, yet if you go to China... Uh, it'll be Weibo, it's a different channel which dominates uh, the the information gathering process and obviously information or social media in that country. It's different in different countries. Russia, different picture, and Brazil are different. Mm. So it's not just the language, it may well be the actual channel. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of of, of the plans, uh, building on what Gary said and looking at the detail and what Francis said, is sometimes you, you find it's the responsibility of the center to monitor social media. Well, one, yes, a really good one will understand it, it, if their operations are in Brazil or Russia or China, that there are different uh, to channels to, to monitor. But they've got to obviously have the language capability to do that. Um, and the way we look at social media in a crisis is we've we, we told people to think of it in three ways. Monitoring. You've got to be listening to what's being said because, one, it can give you warning of, of, of issues, and that's what happened in the BP spill. It could give you warning ahead of time, ahead of getting a call from the media that there was a, there was a problem out there, or it can actually give you good information to tell you of, the things that people are talking about where you, they're witnessing things that you might actually be able to react to much more quickly. So there's monitoring, and that's just vital in a crisis. Okay. And that obviously requires social media skills, but also language skills if you have operations in different countries. The second one is, is how you distribute information, whether you do that, um, as, you, as we've said, you need to be able to uh, understand the cultural nuances and the la- linguistic nuances when distributing information. And the last thing in a crisis, and some companies will do this, it's a challenge, and certainly it was a big challenge for BP at that time, was engaging with people. If they want to see you using social media, then they're expecting you to, to engage in a conversation. And that, again, is a very different style of language.
2: I'd only pick up on one thing with that, which is to say that I saw the figures in this Converses report about uh, spend on monitoring and the difference between the UK and the US, for example. Um, We simply don't spend enough money. Uh, monitoring what's going on out there, and in a time of crisis in particular, that's a real drawback. So you're in talking responding. about
0: monitoring in general, or monitoring yeah. in different languages. Yeah, or all, both, all of it. Or both uh, uh, monitoring
2: yeah. in general, monitoring in different languages, social media, and elsewhere. Well. Yeah. as an industry, as a, a corporate body, the UK, if you like, just doesn't spend enough on mm. this. Mm.
0: There's another area I wanted to look at. One of probably one of the most important parts of the report, actually, um, which is where it looked into the speed of response. Which again, something. Simon touched on in the the clip we played earlier. Gary, I'm guessing this is the key bit when it comes to organisations and their crisis comms agencies having the resource to, or the resources available, I should say, to get those localised messages out in a timely manner. Now, again, looking at the stats, over 90% of respondents said they provide a holding statement in a local language within five hours, but the follow-up statements take a little longer, as you were Expect thirty six percent do so between two and six hours, twenty seven percent between six and twelve hours, and then twenty four percent between twelve and twenty four hours. Which, again, coming back to the topic of social media, can be quite a lot of time. You know, by the time that's out there, things have already started to sort of take a life of their own. Would you say that's the biggest challenge?
1: I do. I and, and you know, with the, with the growth of the phenomena of citizen journalists, this is only getting worse or more difficult to handle. And I think picking up. On uh, what Francis was saying earlier on, this you know the, the the social media has changed the ballpark in terms of the way organisations need to handle this, and the ballpark has been changed. And frankly, this is the second um, confession uh, of the of the podcast in the sense that I've already said and admitted you don't need to translate into every language. The second one is that the language services industry is not set up to respond quickly enough, and we need to make Real big sta- uh, steps as an industry, and uh, in terms of being able to meet that demand, there's a. As I said earlier on, there is you know if you've got an infinite amount of time, you can perfect the message and get it perfectly right. But the way that the industry um, splits machine-based translation and human-based translation, neither of them, for different reasons, actually meet that need properly. We need human-based translations, and we need it to to be delivered real time
2: expectations have changed we're all far less patient whether that's waiting for something to download or to buy something and certainly far less patient to hear a response uh, and to be engaged with and again particularly mm. in a crisis that kills so yeah. i absolutely endorse everything you said
0: sorry neil were you gonna chip in there or
3: no no i, I was <laughs> uh, just going to add the fact that uh, I, th- I think uh, it is something that uh, it is Clearly, a challenge as, as I think Francis said, that when the lawyers get involved, that can be an impediment. But I, I, I've actually found that in training, uh, I really do encourage companies to bring the lawyers in so that they can talk through some of the challenges uh, in, in an atmosphere where it, you're, you're trying to understand uh, understand the problem. And uh, usually, the lawyers who, who've, who've been through a crisis or have gone through training. Have a much better approach and appreciation and an understanding that uh, looking at things thing through a, at a crisis just with the legal lens on is is just not the right thing to do, and if you get the right relationship between the the p r and the the communicator and and the legal side actually they can work very well
0: okay. I want to pick up on a comment that a previous guest of this uh, series the C-Suite Podcast show 18 in fact um, Arun uh, Suderman who is President and Editor-in-Chief of the Holmes Report he, he wrote in the Final Words uh, section of the uh, of this report that we're discussing Arun said that cultural misunderstandings can undermine the best of intentions and they help explain why global companies despite their desire for centralised control must ensure they have the right local people and PR council if they um, hope to navigate their next crisis. I'd therefore just like to finish off um, by asking each of you how you see this area of global communications developing in the future. Gary, let's go with you first.
1: Well, it was consistent with my uh, answer to the last question and in the language industry generally. we've Through judicious use of both technology and people, we've got to get to a situation where we can achieve um, quality, nuanced communications in a much faster time than we do currently. So that for, for me, for my own speaking, for my own industry, that needs to be the main focus of their attention. Okay, Neil, what's
0: your thoughts?
3: The way I put it is that bad things will happen to to good companies. Is what those good companies do about it, and part of showing that they're good companies and, and have good, strong values is is being sensitive to you know, the <clears throat> cultural sensitivities in the places where they operate. Uh, and
0: that includes the language sensitivity of, what the, of where they operate. Okay, and Francis, as spokesperson for the comms industry, I thought I'd give you the last word.
2: <laughs> that's very kind of you. <laughs> what can I add to those words of wisdom? Um, I guess only that I see an industry that's growing every year, uh, and that's a, a great thing because corporate reputation is being taken far more seriously. And I obviously welcome that. The, the one uh, nuanced observation, I guess, I'd make it be this: I agree entirely with the rune. Cultural misunderstandings get in the way, um, and the desire for centralised control sometimes has unintended consequences. You can't just parachute somebody in from London or New York to take control of your crisis. You've got to have people you trust on the ground there who can do the work for you in the home language and with the home nuance. And I think that's an important thing to bear in mind.
0: Excellent. Uh, Well, as ever, another interesting chat here on the C-Suite Podcast. So thanks again to my three guests, Gary Muddyman, Francis Ingham and Neil Chapman. Um, Of course, if you want to grab a copy of the report that we've been discussing today, uh, just go to uh, conversis.com C-O-N-V-E-R-S-I-S conversis.com and there is a link to it from their homepage. Um, Now, as I mentioned earlier, I'm back next week for the next show with two guests from SEMA talking about C-Suite decision-making. But if you want to catch up on all previous shows in the series, you can do so by subscribing to us on SoundCloud or searching iTunes just search for the c-suite podcast in the iTunes store um, when you get there don't forget to give us a decent rating and a review please and as always if you want to get in touch with me directly about the show you can find me on Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith or drop me a line using the contact form at c-suite thanks for listening and goodbye